0: Welcome to the Designated Drinker Show, the podcast that's raising the bar on craft cocktails. I am your host, Louise. Solace, and with me, as always, is my very, very talented friend. She is a deity, if she is nothing else, the mixtress, DC Gina. Hey,
1: Louise, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm feeling sudsy.
0: Sudsy. Tell me, what does that mean? I mean, I feel like a
1: frothy beverage. I don't know.
0: (laughs) I'm ready. (laughs) Well, that's a good thing. It's a good (laughs) thing you're ready. Okay. So, Gina, I am sure you know the song, 100 Bottles of Beer on the Wall, yeah? Yeah, of course. But do you know the hymn to Ninkisi?
1: No.
0: The hymn to Ninkisi is not only a song to praise Ninkisi, the ancient Sumerian god of beer, but it also detailed the rituals of brewing. And what has been found was written down around 1800 BCE, But scholars say the hymn is no doubt much older, since the techniques described in the song reflect techniques from at least a thousand years earlier. Good thing for us, the hymn to Nankisi was incredibly popular and passed down through oral tradition from generation to generation. And I'm going to guess, if it were recorded today, it would definitely make the Billboard's Top 100, because it was so lighthearted, praise drinking, And, of course, praised everyone's favorite Sumerian goddess, Ninkisi.
1: Well, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Who knew? Do you think that's just like Snoop Dogg's gin and juice? Because that also praises drinking.
0: Absolutely. I I would say (laughs) that it's the ancient Sumerian's (laughs) version of that. (laughs) And I would say Snoop Dogg is pretty much a god. He is definitely a rap god. So. I mean. It's a stretch, but I'm buying what you're selling. (laughs) All right. So, speaking of deities of beer, brings me to today's designated drinker. She's a curator of the American Brewing History Initiative at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. She is none other than Teresa McCullough. Welcome to the show, Teresa. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for coming. Thanks. A deity. That is
2: two kinds. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, if the toga fits. I don't know what Sumerians wore, but... <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so, Teresa, Wait a minute, I got to get my notes for this. You describe what you do as, quote, I document and collect the history of beer and brewing in the United States with a focus on the histories of home brewing and craft beer. That is such a mouthful. Please, please, please tell everyone how this journey all began because I imagine most of our listeners would love to have your career
2: the job at the museum has been amazing. I mean, you know, it's been as, as you said, it's quite simply been to collect the history of craft beer, the recent past and present of beer in the United States. And so in a typical world that involves a lot of travel around the country and touring breweries and speaking with growers and all the amazing people who make American beer, how incredible it is. But my path to this job was quite winding. And, you know, I never expected to be in this kind of job, but, uh, you know, I'm so grateful to be here. You know, it actually started with an undergraduate study in Romance languages, which, I think it encouraged a love of travel and food and cooking and drink. And then I had a, a few jobs before this. I worked for the, uh, the Central Intelligence Agency. It was my first job out of college. Got a cooking degree at a, a culinary school, and I also worked for Harvard University Dining Services and then got my PhD in American Studies at Harvard. I studied the food and drink industry in New Orleans, which is a wonderful place to eat and to drink and to enjoy life. And then from there, you know, arrived at the Smithsonian and where the focus has been on, on beer.
1: Just back up, back up one step. You can get a degree on food and drink in New Orleans. <laughs> There's a lot to break
0: down there, Gina.
1: Jump right in. I I wrote
2: my dissertation, yeah, on on food and drink in New Orleans, and it's I mean it's it's an incredible place because it has kept its history very well in terms of you know its past, what people have loved to eat and drink, and you know sell in terms of food. So it's it's an awesome place to study and to relax after you study.
1: It's the one city in this whole planet that legitimately has all my heartstrings. I cannot believe that you, and I'm not laughing because I just, I almost want my I want to do this too. (laughs) I love that. So can I ask you? All right. Well, you know we're going to go off topic. Whatever. Give me your favorite place right now to go to New Orleans for a drink. Oh, I I transport you there right now. Where we go? Yeah. Okay. There's a a wonderful little bar well let me see there's a bar called cure which is
2: fabulous it's, it's one of the best in the country but then i'm also thinking of bar it's a it's an outdoor music venue you can have jazz and wine and drinks in the backyard of this place bacchanal
1: yeah of course
2: It's an incredible place because you sit outside, and because much of New Orleans is below the level of the Mississippi River, you can actually sit and listen to wonderful music and watch cruise ships and other ships pass above, seemingly above you, across the street. You know, the Mississippi River is very close by, and it's just a—it's an incredible
1: place. That's amazing. See, like you said, like the whole—you know—the whole history of like how the fruits and stuff came to New Orleans port first, and all that. Yeah, you know, my my interest in New Orleans came through first through
2: language because I, I studied French and Spanish and Italian as an undergrad and uh, and all of those languages are present in New Orleans history. I mean, New Orleans was a you know an immigration port of entry and you know a, a colonial city before it was an American city. It was Spanish and French, and so all those languages are present in in the archives and and you know just in the city's past. And so I became very interested in how New Orleanians in different eras talked about race ideas of race and ethnicity which changed over time in relation to food and drink and you know especially in new orleans i think there's this kind of every place has a mythology and and craft beer has a mythology to it a story to it a history to it and, and new orleans is no exception but I just became interested in how early that sense of a a story or a history started and how people and food and drink were kind of figured into the identity of this city as a place where people have gone, you know, really since the 1800s to imagine that it's a place where they can kind of kick back and and be
0: out of time or out of place.
1: That's amazing.
0: It would seem to me, I'm not surprised by any of this, somebody who is like, So interested in history, so interested in food and beverage. I mean, it's like a perfect marriage for you in New Orleans.
2: It really was. And I, you know, I had to give full credit to my advisor in grad school who, you know, I was just kind of not, not sure what I wanted to focus on. And she said, why don't you buy a ticket to New Orleans and, uh, you know, literally buy a plane ticket there. I'd never been there before. And, and so, you know, I flew there and it's just, I did, like I said, I found this just incredible city with a rich history and, uh, you know, very rich present. And I do believe, even though my focus at the Smithsonian is more on beer, that, you know, it's really the same set of questions, similar set of questions, similar approach to, to kinds of historical sources or historical research that I use now and in that project.
0: That's awesome. It's, I always say, uh, New Orleans is, uh, she's like a dirty kind of gritty kind of broad <laughs> of a soul. And it's she's such, a, if you don't have fun in New Orleans, I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> wrong.
1: <laughs> New Orleans is special. And that's amazing. And then it brought you here, which is my other favorite place. So I mean, I've lived here now for 18 years. So this is kind of amazing. All right.
0: So you started off at the CIA. Tell tell us all the secrets. No one's listening. I promise. Just tell us all the secrets of the CIA. Yeah, well, and um, it's fine to talk
2: about because I had a, a you know very unspooky job there, which is uh, <laughs> you know I, I was hired to work as an Italian and French media analyst, and the CIA, you know, as as may not be surprising to to listeners, is uh, you know interested in all kinds of things, but one of those is uh, world media and, you know, just monitoring um, how how events and, and happenings are covered in, in different media markets around the world. And so the CIA does that. And so they need, you know, they have an office of linguists essentially who are um, covering the news. And so they're, you know, un, these are unclassified, what they call open sources. Uh, you know, they're just in other languages. And so it was, um, it was an interesting time to be there and I enjoyed putting my languages to use, but, you know, I sat in a cubicle, I couldn't see a tree or an office for my desk and uh, just wanted something a little different. And so, you know, I had always, I had been interested in food and cooking throughout my undergraduate years. And so I started to work in the evenings, part time and for free in a restaurant kitchen here in Northern Virginia and then you know working on the line during dinner service just one night a week to see what that was like and then second night a week for a pastry chef who had a, a professional kitchen in her basement and she made wedding cakes and then a third night a week a food writer uh, Joan Nathan she specializes in the history of Jewish cooking around the- mm-hmm. I love her. Yeah. And she needed, at the time, she needed some French language research assistance. She was writing her book about the history of Jewish cooking in France. And so I, I wanted to explore sweet and savory cooking and and food, more ac- an academic approach. And, and, you know, I loved all three of those things, but it, it made for Long days, but good days.
0: So I want to I want to back that up just a little bit too. It's funny how she just glosses glosses over these things. Am I? I'm correct, Teresa, when I say you wrote like 20 letters to different chefs and volunteered to work for free so that you could learn. Is that that's correct, right?
2: Yes. No, it is. And I um yes. And when I was you know when I was, when I was starting to wonder if I wanted to really change up my line of work and, you know, was thinking about food. And I forget who I spoke to first, who said, you know, you should get your hands dirty before you pay a bunch of money to a culinary school or just, you know, understand what the work is like. And so I did, I sent about 20 letters out to, to chefs around DC and the area. And, you know, I just said I would be open to coming an evening a week to stage to work for free, you know, after my day job. And And I heard back from some people from Carol Greenwood at Box Fishing and Camping and, and Frank Ruda and you know, these people were very kind and just said, you know, I, I see what you're trying to do, but I just don't have room in my kitchen and I understood that, I appreciated it. But then Michael Landrum met raised the stakes when it was in Arlington, his first location. He responded and and was very generous and said, yeah, come on Tuesday evenings. And, you know, and I don't want to overblow, you know, what I did. It was, it was quite simple stuff. It was, you know, prepping appetizers and desserts and expediting a little bit, but it was work to do during the dinner service. And I really enjoyed it very much, you know, and I respect the, the nature of the work very much. And, uh, you know, my, my sister is now an executive pastry, pastry chef in Arlington at the Northside social restaurant group. And oh. So she went fully into that track and has been there for almost 10 years. So, you know, she does the kitchen work now. And I, I, I kind of changed direction a little bit, but it's hard, physical creative work, which is, uh, was fun.
0: That's what I was, that, that was my point with all of that is not trying to oversell what you did for them, but what you did do was really, really hard work.
2: It, extremely hard work, and especially you know I want to say too, the second evening week I worked for the pastry chef, and and again this is what my sister does now. Her name is uh, Bridie McCullough. You know I think there's I don't know if it's because of movies or things in the in the recent past. You know the last ten years have given this image of cupcake bakeries or whatever as this kind of fun career. Switch. It is hard as hell. It's, it's it's really heavy. You know, it's heavy work. It's it can be you know it's exacting work, super detail oriented, long hours, and so you know I think so much physical labor goes into creating wonderful, beautiful sweets and other things that
1: most of us enjoy for fun and emotion on the other end. Wedding cakes are the most yes about most stressful because you're going to give it to a bride yes that's right for their wedding day right.
2: Well, <laughs> and actually the, the <laughs> conclusion of my time working for this person was to help make my own wedding cake, oh. which was really fun and ended up being a bit of a funny story though, because, you know, I, I picked out the flavors I wanted and thought of, you know, how, how we might like to decorate it. And I remember sitting in this little basement kitchen and I made all these hundreds of tiny little sugar flowers. And then I got married a couple of hours away and the, the pastry chef was driving the cake down to the reception venue. And she I got married in late June, so it's very warm. And during the reception, the pastry chef came up to me and she said, "I'm really sorry, but <laughs> on the ride here, I had to slam on the brakes, and your cake imploded. It, it, <laughs> so she, um, it, it, she showed me this incredible photo of the cake in that, you know, essentially upside down in the back of her car. But as all wonderful chefs and and pastry chefs do, she went into the kitchen there and create, you know, made it into a new cake and it looked totally different from the outside, but tasted great. And there was one
1: layer missing, but nobody, nobody knew. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that's amazing. First of all, wow. That's crazy, right?
0: Yeah. There's not much you can do. Talk about spilt milk. No. I guess spilt milk, tip cake. Uh, I don't know. No. And it was, it ended up fine.
1: And I'm, <laughs> I am still married. <laughs> that's a great story though. Absolutely. The cake that almost wasn't. Yeah.
0: So tell us about your what you do for the Smithsonian. This I mean it well actually how did you even like find your way there? How did that I mean you Teresa, how did that happen for you?
2: They they posted this job opening in the summer of 2016 and I was finishing my PhD. I was living in Albuquerque, New Mexico because my husband was a professor at the University of New Mexico and and the museum said they were looking for someone to start this new initiative to build a new collection related to these histories of home brewing and craft beer and it was so unusual and bizarre and fun sounding and I actually was sent the job ad by my grad school advisor the same person who told me to buy a ticket to New Orleans and then a few minutes later by a friend and so I took that as kind of a good sign that you know my my academic mentor and a friend both thought that it might be a fit for me and so I applied and was so fortunate to get it and started in early 2017. Since then, it's just, it's been a a wonderful effort to collect objects and documents and record oral histories with all different kinds of people in the brewing industry to build a collection that is national in scope and, you know, scholarly in approach in terms of, you know, trying to think hard about what researchers now and in the future would find useful and, you know, put that to use in the museum setting, whether it's in exhibits or in public programs, or take it beyond the bounds of the museum.
1: Awesome. That is so cool. Where do you see, like where, if I was gonna to go to the Smithsonian, where do we find your, your exhibits? If you
2: go into the Smithsonian today, which, uh, you know, it's, I, I wish it were open, you know, it's closed for much of the last year due to COVID, but we're very hopeful, uh, you know, that we'll be welcoming people back to the museum. The food exhibit on the ground floor is called Food Transforming the American Table. It's where Julia Child's Kitchen lived. Yeah. It's the crown jewel of the exhibit. Of course. So a team of curators and I just worked for a few years refreshing the exhibit, and it was reopened in October of 2019, and we had done a thorough review of all of the objects in the exhibit, the text, really everything. And there is now a new section of the exhibit called Brewing a Revolution, and it explores the early years of homebrewing and microbrewing, especially in California and Colorado from the 1960s through 1980s. And it's in that area of the museum that you can see some of the things I've, I've collected.
1: That is pretty amazing. So 1960s, when the microbrew really started to happen. If listeners are are, are beer fans or, um, you know, food fans,
2: you might have heard this term craft beer revolution or, or micro, you know, microbrewed beer. And um, yeah, and yeah, we we date the beginnings of the current this current moment in beer to um, really the mid 1960s to the present. But I would say it really didn't kind of pick up steam until the 1980s. But after Prohibition was repealed in the U.S., which was 1933, there were a few decades of consolidation in the brewing industry, and American beer really became synonymous with this kind of you know fairly bland light lager style of beer. I and mean, I'm not. I don't say that as a put down because that style continues to be the most popular style of beer. I mean, it's, it's a in the world. Yeah. And it's, a, it's, you know, it's a technically perfect style of beer that a lot of these very big breweries make and very refreshing, very light. Um, but, you know, really in the sixties or so, there were some Americans who traveled overseas for military service or for study and just found this whole world of beer styles out there and wanted to make something different, wanted to to have choice, you know, as many of them put it. And so, so many of these people brought homebrewing manuals or equipment back to the States with them and started to homebrew, even though homebrewing was illegal still at the time. And then we have, you know, the history of the very first microbreweries, especially in uh, California, Colorado. uh, And then, you know, especially in the 80s, 90s, has proliferated to the extent that we then switched and started calling them craft breweries because some of them had grown beyond the micro scale.
1: So what was the first micro brew? I, I think it is, and then this is me just going off top of my head. I think it's Sierra Nevada. Who was it? They were very early for sure, but Anchor Brewing Company
2: in San Francisco mm. is one kind of first because it was a, a long-standing brewery. It had started in the 19th century but it was purchased in 1965 by Fritz Maytag. And he is of the Maytag Washing Machine Company family in Iowa. And he is just has a prodigious intellect and creativity. And he was living in San Francisco to go to Stanford and described how he became very interested in the brewery, primarily because of the brewing equipment. He was very intrigued by the wizard-like setting. And just, he described described himself as an alchemist. And he loved mixing things together to see what would happen. And so he used his money from the Maytag family to purchase the brewery and to really breathe new life into it. And so in this existing brewery, he started to brew European styles of beer using very traditional ingredients and kind of artisan techniques that had not been used in the united states for a very long time you know maybe some styles had never been brewed in the u.s and so people who were interested then went on to found their own breweries and um, new albion brewing company in sonoma california which opened in 1976 is commonly considered to be the first from the ground up brewery where people uh, you know that the co-founders really built the equipment raised the walls and started from scratch
1: where do they what do they brew now are they still there they're not still there no they were um
2: Fairly short-lived; they were only open for six years. They closed in 1982, but they were so important. There were so many people who came to visit Anchor Brewing Company, who came to visit New Albion Brewery to see how they were doing it. You know, how were they brewing at a small scale? And one of the people who liked to hang around New Albion Brewing Company was a guy named Ken Grossman, who uh, ran a homebrew supply shop in Chico, California, and then went on to open a little brewery called Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, which uh, has uh, clearly achieved uh, fabulous success. And so there's a really interesting genealogy of, you know, among microbrewers and craft brewers, because it is one aspect of this industry that has made it so fun and fruitful for me to research is that because all this growth has happened, really, in my lifetime, people are very much here and, and, you know, excited to to share their stories and their objects. And so to be able to trace these kind of paths of influence with people, and interestingly, too, with equipment, you will go to visit breweries, and people will say, Oh, I picked up this fermenter from this brewery, or, you know, this kettle from this brewery. And so just the kind of networks of friendship and influence uh, are pretty visible uh, in beer.
0: You know, it sounds like a lot of what has happened in your Personal and professional life sounds like it echoes because it's it was it was your professor who was pushed you to go to New Orleans pushed you or like in you know at, sent you to the Smithsonian or like thought you should be there. It's just kind of interesting about how those two storylines kind of are common.
2: That's right, yeah, for sure. You know, when I travel and speak with various settings, I like to say it's been clear to me how the idea of of mentorship is so important in in the food world, in the beer world, and, you know, certainly in in the academic world too. And so, you know, I think whatever our worlds, whatever our industries, you know, whether one works in food or not, you know, I think to understand all that we have benefited from, you know, in terms of the mentors who've come before us, and then to try to pay it back is, uh, you know, something that I think about.
0: Absolutely. Mentoring never hurts. It really doesn't.
1: Okay, Gina, are we ready to toast this woman? Yes. I mean, obviously, of course. All right so this so we had a little bit I feel like I was on a little top chef challenge based on my ingredient list that I was given to yeah. make a cocktail. So we had mandarins, we have a, s- a smoky component and we were gonna put all this together with choice of mezcal or rum. So I kind of made, I made a cocktail it's based on a drink called a cooler. A cooler is just a cocktail that's served up. It's usually a long drink it has a citrus component and then it would have a dry um, either champagne or can have beer in it. So I kind of wanted to like bring that back when I was given my ingredient list. So we can make this together. And I know that most of you are just listening, but I wanted to kind of like just go over this. So what I did was I took my citrus and you can use mandarin, lemon, lime, you know, kumquats, whatever you're feeling. But what I want you to to just be um, cognitive of is that you're using you know, roughly two ounces of the fruit. So I just took my maple orange, which I had here in the restaurant. We're at um, Buffalo and Bergen today. And I'm going to show you a little trick. So you can either take it, put it directly in your glass and muddle it, or you could take your juicer, your hand juicer, and give it a little squish. And then you're going to take the fruit and turn the juicer on its side and then put the fruit in the bottom of the glass. I want you to have that fresh citrus on the bottom. And of course, if you add a little bit more citrus, no problem, adding too little is not the best thing. You kind of, you, you want the um, flavor from it. This is a very, very simple drink. So in a recipe that I sent out, I said that we're gonna do two ounces of mezcal. We're gonna finish your crushed ice, beer, and simple syrup. And now that I'm looking at my glass, I'm thinking one and a half ounces of mezcal. So we'll just change that up just a bit. And we're going to build this drink in the glass we're going to do one and a half ounces of a nice smoky mezcal i'm using el silencio you know it's a favorite here at um designated drinker no i do not work for them i just really like their product so it's always kind of one of those things
0: shout out to torrance
1: yeah hi torrance so we're gonna do half an ounce of simple syrup now you don't have to add simple syrup if you are i like it dry and i don't want any simple syrup no problem but i like to put in something with like a little bit of sugar just to round it out it's kind of like when you're cooking and you're making tomato sauce and your tomatoes are super acidic and you add a teaspoon of sugar and all of a sudden everything is better and brighter it's kind of the same thing in the drinks so we're going to add the half an ounce and then you can add bitters to this and you can use like a smoky bitters you could add um angostura bitters something you know You know, super easy. I'm actually gonna use a little bit, just an aromatic, old fashioned type bitters. And I'm putting in two dashes, two to three dashes. Don't do more than that because it will be overwhelming. Um, And if you happen to have crushed ice, crushed ice is the way to go on this drink. Because what we're gonna do is we're gonna put this in there. If you don't have crushed ice, you do not need crushed ice to make this drink wonderful. All you need to do is use ice cubes and make it cold. Crushed ice makes it look prettier. So if you wanna, Be technical, you know, that's how I do it. So, you're going to just take your spoon, you're going to punch it up and down. You're not going to bring it, you're giving it a gentle stir, but you're not bringing the fruit to the top because when you're drinking a cooler, you actually don't use a straw with this. You're just going to sip it from your lips. So, the drink is actually going to evolve and you're going to take your beer. So, now you have your drink, top of your glass. It looks like there's no room. And now we're going to add our beer. And you can make this drink into uh, a pitcher cocktail or you know something a little bit larger if you want to see what that would look like we could just do that right now You take the drink make it for two people you add a little bit more crushed ice you add a little bit more beer and it looks super pretty and then you have a drink for two and you just pour it out for your loved one over some crushed ice or on a patio or you could have a double I'm not telling anybody <laughs> I don't want to share. That's my job. That's my, that's my job in the uh, in the cocktail world. I'm a secret keeper as well. So we're gonna just put in a little garnish. There you have it. You just have a little beer cooler. Now I know that I have a historian on the show that you might want to call this a boiler maker, but technically a boilermaker is a beer and a shot served together and not inside of each other. So with that being said. We just take our glass, pour it in, serve it to yourselves, to a your friend, to your loved one, to your husband, because of the cake, and we cheers. Ooh.
0: Yeah, so that all of our listeners know, Gina is coming from Buffalo and Bergen, so she's still being very safe, um, following all the precautions and wearing her mask, so she sounds a little muffled. It's not that she's intoxicated. It's that she's following COVID rules.
1: Yeah. I can take it off now everyone's clear it out except for um, one person but they're also vaccinated it's kind of really nice get your vaccines I will say that to everybody
0: absolutely my arm is sore so what do you think Teresa delicious it's really
2: good and I agree it's a very uh, it's a very pretty drink to look at too so what beer did you use Teresa I did use the Captain Dynamite IPA from New Belgium I mean it's a hazy IPA so it's uh, the the hops have a fruity character so it's a uh, it's not a citrus IPA, if that's...
1: Oh, uh, what kind of, uh, I believe there's citra hops in there. Is that right? I think you
2: are right. Yes, I should, I could check online, but I, I believe that's right. I, I just gave a talk earlier today about hops and the history of hops. And I liked having this in my fridge because I'm showing them the the can. I mean, you know, hops play such a starring role in craft beer. You've got hops on the can. You've got even the, the variety of hops, you know, have, you know, a kind of named part of, of beer names. So yeah, it makes for a delicious cocktail.
1: Have you ever like grown
2: hops? No, I have not. But the outside of the American History Museum, we have a victory garden and some studying gardens grows beautiful cascade hops. And for the last few years, we have worked with the local homebrew community to brew beers with those hop and incredibly fun. And you know, we harvest them too. We sit, you know, on the lawn right outside the museum and, and pick the hop. So have you grown hops?
1: Yeah. So a few years ago, we had a, a beer garden and part of our whole thing was that we had we wanted to grow our own hops over there. And it was called um, Tapping Garden. It was in the Union Market District. And it was only a very it was a short pop up because um, they were going to build a building over it. I believe that most people know that there is a Spanish market now at Union Market. That's where the, the beer garden was. Oh, but I had no idea. And I love growing vegetables, fruits, herbs, all of it that hops come on these like ribosome, like these little like twig-like things and that they're not, they have to um, like multiply on their own, just like agave or, you know, certain fruits and uh, vegetables and stuff that if that strand dies, there isn't a seed. So you have to take it from another plant. So really every single hop that you've ever had, like anywhere, comes from some part of like the magical story of the Bavarian forest where beer comes from, right? So they say that everything can trace back to that. And I find that to be so fascinating in the world of this little bud, you know? And like, it's kind of amazing. And if you ever have a chance, and I'm sure you've been there, that like, you go to like, you know, Italy and you're like somewhere in like Aptoologia and you walk into the forest, hops are everywhere. They look like vines. It's like kind of like heaven. I feel like you know everything about Italy if you speak that. If you speak Italian like that, <laughs> no, 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 I don't.
2: <laughs> no, I don't. You have likely learned that most most of the hops that we enjoy in our beers are from hops that originated in Europe and then were brought to the to North America by European settlers. But there are hops varieties that are indigenous to North America. And one of them is is called Neo Mexicanus. And there's a wonderful craft brewery in Albuquerque, New Mexico called Bow and Arrow Brewing Company. It's women-owned, indigenous-owned, and they in 2020 they made a beer solely with foraged Neo-Mexicanus hops. And they share, they've shared photos of them, you know, foraging for these hops in in the desert there.
0: Really, really neat.
1: That's like so special. I love that.
0: Sounds like a lot of really hard work too to like forage for hops in the desert. <laughs> yes it does.
2: <laughs> yes yeah and hops you know as 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 I have learned just from my uh, my work harvesting you know Smithsonian gardens and and again I, the work I did was minimal but it's a, a vine so rather than a vine and so the plant is covered with you know tiny little spines that help it grow and and it grows very fast and it can kind of cling onto anything but that those little stickers on the bind plus the, the oils make for a very kind of sticky, prickly work that can kind of, you know, can kind of tear
0: up your arms. And so it's, it's, it's hard work to pick up. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: enjoy your beers.
0: Exactly. Exactly. So Gina, we didn't do our uh, barkeeping. Where are they going to go to get this recipe?
1: You're going to go to designateddrinker.show and you're going to get um, the tips and the recipes and how to find Teresa. And if you didn't get that, it's designateddrinker.show.
0: Yes. To Gina's point, we'll have all of the tips and tricks, but we'll have links to the Smithsonian. And if you want those, they're also just all you have to do on your smartphone. It'll be right in your episode notes. Just swipe up and they'll be right there. So we'll have links in the descriptors in both. So you can find out when, when the Smithsonian is open and then come see your amazing exhibit. I can't wait. I know. I know. I have a question for you. In your collection, all that you've forged and hunted for when it wasn't hops, do you have a favorite thing that you've... Added to the collection. Do you have it? Can you have a favorite child? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, I, I would put it that way. And I think the the answer is no, but I will I will share one that I love and that arrived very recently at the museum. So it's um, special to me for a few reasons. But this first microbrewery I mentioned, New Albion Brewing Company in Sonoma, California. A lot of beer fans and historians, we remember the name Jack McAuliffe, and we should. I mean, he's the, you know, it's his idea to build this little brewery from scratch, but what has received greater attention in the last couple of years, thanks to the work of some other historians, uh, Maureen Ogle and Tom Attili, is that Jack had two women co-founders who invested in this brewery, who brewed beer with him, who delivered the beer, bottled the beer, did everything you know in this brewery. And they were women who were slightly older than him. You know their names were Susie Dennison, uh, Jane Zimmerman. Susie was in her 40s. She was a divorced mom of three. And you know, imagine meeting this. Guy in Sonoma who says, You know, will you go in on me with this brewery? This is a crazy idea I have. And so she invested her money, lent her minivan to deliver the beer. And she is she is still living. She has an incredible memory of her years at this brewery, and you know her role in this um, you know really the beginnings of craft beer have thankfully been brought back I think into the limelight recently. And so I flew to visit her in Seattle and record an inter- interview with her in November of 2019. It was my last research trip before COVID arrived, and recorded this incredible conversation with her. And then she pulled out of her of her closet, you know, these things that she had kept from her time working at the brewery almost 40 years ago. And she very kindly donated to the museum, a bottle of new Albion ale, Porter and stout, the three varieties of beer they brewed. And they're still, the bottles are still filled and sealed and capped with their little foil cap, you know, you know, foil on top of this, the caps. And she, she went through with the donation, and even despite the pandemic, she left these these precious bottles on her front porch, you know, the day we had scheduled the fine arts shippers to come to her house and you know, everything was done quite safely, you know, she was well aware of when they were arriving. But, you know, and then these shippers picked up these bottles, conveyed them all the way across the country to the to the museum in downtown DC and Oh my god, I was just able to go into the museum last week and schedule them for their glamour shots, their photography, you know, from the our wonderful museum photographer. And it's it feels so incredible to handle these. Bottles that this woman filled 40 years ago and uh, and kept safe for all these years, and then gave as a gift to everyone, to the public, you know, to be kept safe by the Smithsonian. And so these bottles of you know the beginnings of microbrew beer are uh, are quite close to my heart, and they are safe now in the museum and waiting for waiting for the museum to reopen, and so they can be shared with everyone.
0: That's amazing, and I'm sure they were like obviously cherished. By her because she kept them, but to to think that something that you've been a part of is now going to be shared and it, uh, on the stage like the Smithsonian, I'm sure she had to feel very honored. And even though again she was feeling like losing one of her children or all three of her children, but to think that she could share that with that you give her a platform that she can share that is amazing.
2: Yeah, and that's very meaningful for me and for my colleagues I know at the museum to to see what, what impact it has on people when they make the decision to share things that have been precious to them into their life stories. I mean, it's a, it's a great responsibility and uh, the museum does such a wonderful job of, uh, of taking care of those things. That's
0: awesome. So Gina, I think this is it. I think we're there. I think this is, I'm pitching it back to you.
1: It is time. All right. So, you know, in this day and age, everybody always identifies themselves with some sort of like spirit animal. And they're like, you know, I really identify myself with the angora bunny because they're found in the forest and they always, you know, can decimate a crop of freshly growing hops prior to them growing up and they just can decimate a whole field. If you can identify yourself as one spirit ingredient and you're cooking, what would be your spirit ingredient? basically cooking or, or, or cocktails. Szechuan peppercorn. Whoa. (laughs) And I, I love it as an ingredient
2: and, and we actually used it to make a cocktail recently, a Szechuan peppercorn, simple syrup. That was, Fabulous. It was so good. It was, a, it was a sweet and sour cocktail, but it added, it made for a fabulous drink, but we love using it in our cooking and toasting it and grinding it. And so, you know, we discovered, I would say we discovered Szechuan food um, in Rockville, Maryland, shortly after college. You know, we just kind of made our way through Rockville, enjoying wonderful, the wonderful, wonderful food uh, in that neighborhood. So I would say that.
1: Nice. Nice. That's amazing. Also, that was the first time we had Szechuan peppercorn ever. Which is amazing. That's also incredible. So I love that. All right, guys, Uh,
0: gals, I think we're at the end. I think we've gotten here. You know what they say. All right. Well, it was a pleasure. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thanks for coming. Thanks for coming, Teresa. Be safe, everyone. The Designated Drinker Show is produced by Missing Link, a podcast media company that is dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is Roger That, a podcast dedicated to guiding you through the haze of dementia, led by skilled caregivers, Fabi and Mike Carducci. Now, if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy the theater, check out Between Acts, an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights, from dramas to comedies and everything in between find Missing Link's League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe, download, and review the shows. Your review helps our shows reach new audiences. To find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company. That's missinglink.company.